Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 148. In this episode, we're talking about Kintsugi and Justice with Heijin Shim Fujimura. Heijin Shim Fujimura is a lawyer who runs her own law firm in New York City, Shim and Associates, and an entrepreneur who has started four businesses, including Academy Kintsugi. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Stephanie Kate Judd, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. It was so lovely to have Heijin on the podcast with us to talk about Kintsugi at, at length. This is such a wonderful art form and to reflect more on its applicability to justice and to the brokenness of our world was just so powerful. Steph and Amber, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Heijin? As a fellow lawyer, I really love the way that she translated the practice of Kintsugi into her legal practice, particularly in the sense of, well, if, if we believe that um, beauty as justice isn't just about fixing something, it's about making something new. For me, I was thinking about the way that that transforms client relationships, transforms the way that you engage with victims of injustice, because you're, you're thinking about how do you encounter the fractures and uh, the traumas and the breakdowns of relationship that pervade all levels of our common life together and co-create something new um, that is more beautiful than what preceded it. Um, And I was really um, taken by the vision of the legal practice that she has started up in, in New York and I think that there's something in that for even if any of our listeners who who maybe they're not theologians or they're not in the academy, um, how do you how do you bring this this approach to life and the brokenness that we all encounter into the things that you do day in day out, um, whatever your your working life looks like? Um, and there's a real there's a real promise, there's a real possibility and hope to that. Um, so I, I was really encouraged and inspired by that conversation. How about you, Amber? Well, I, I just love the messages of Kintsugi that she brings out. And we had her husband, Makoto Fujimura, on an earlier episode and really were taken by his descriptions of beauty and how art opens us onto this profound reality. The way she talks about justice being the other side of the same coin as beauty really resonates with this message of Kintsugi that these are broken pieces that are precious, that are worth saving, and they're worth the precious gold and lacquer that sometimes may be worth more than those pieces themselves to make something new. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that... Here's our conversation with Agent Shim Fujimura. Well, Agent, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're really excited to talk with you about Kintsugi and how you see that 
playing into your practice as a lawyer. But I thought before we begin with that conversation, if we could hear a little bit about your background and, and what it is that you do. Absolutely. Um, I'm a lawyer and an entrepreneur. And so I, I got to start multiple companies in my life. And on a day-to-day basis, I run um, four companies. And one of them is my law firm. And um, I have uh, this really wonderful practice in New York and New Jersey. Um, I We get to serve multiple businesses, um, starting from uh, startups all the way to publicly traded companies. Um, and, um, you know, I love um, serving them, at one, to resolve any disputes that they may have, and two, help them really advance their businesses by, um, you know, helping them with the structures and closings and other kinds of transactions. And um, I also lead a nonprofit organization called Embers International, it's an E-M-B-E-R-S, Uh, And it's a global nonprofit that serves the victims of injustice. And we focus on India right now to end intergenerational exploitation for the lowest caste and um, victims of trafficking. Um, And then I get to also um, run Academy Kintsuki that we're about to talk about and also um, run an uh, artist management company uh, right now, um, supporting my beloved husband, Makoto Fujimura, with all of his artistic endeavors. And uh, because of that, I get to have this kind of interview, which is super fun. And um, I get to um, go around the world to speak on um, beauty and justice with Mako, as well as um, whole person care and uh, what it means to lead uh, a company um, and, you know, of course, there's a different characteristics for each companies, but um, uh, in particular, uh, small companies and how to cultivate teams and love speaking on that, too. So that's a little bit about myself. Well, one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about in this episode is Academy Kintsugi. And it sounds like as an entrepreneur, as a lawyer, you have a love for these creative endeavors. And you do that in various ways in your professional life and I'm sure your personal life as well. And probably this Academy Kintsugi is very near and dear to your your heart. And I'm wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about what it is and what its purpose is. Absolutely. Um, Let me just explain what Kintsugi is first. Um, Kintsugi is this venerable art form uh, that came probably from China to Korea to Japan, nobody really knows the origin of it, but we see um, evidence of it all over, um, especially in um, East Asia. So kintsugi is a term that was refined in Japan through Japanese tea tradition, but it's an art form that mends broken pottery Uh, into something that is more beautiful and more valuable by applying lacquer and gold, creating something new out of a broken vessel. And this is um, something that uh, can resonate so much with people, and especially in this day and age where we just came out of, well, I don't know if we really came out of the global pandemic yet, but we're coming out of it. And uh, the globally, we have experienced this fracture. Um, and I think almost everybody, if not all, have experienced that effect um, uh, of this trauma. And um, this 
art form, and this is really an art form that needs to be mastered um, uh, over years, but because it carries a, such a message of mending what is broken and not just not not from the idea of fixing it, but creating something new out of it, which is just really remarkable because by creating something new out of brokenness, you are essentially co-creating with the original maker of that vessel. So the idea of keeping the or original pieces and there may be also missing pieces, but creating something new out of that. And you're not just um, making something on your own, but you get to understand what the original maker's intention was and then developing with it as a co-creator. And then the result um, is this, this vessel that is more beautiful and it's an original design because everybody, all, all the fractures are different, right? You may have a very similar looking or even the same bowl, but the fracture will be very unique to that certain bowl and your mending and filling the cracks with gold will look very different. And then, so at the end of that um, journey, you get to have something that's very unique, but it also upholds and honors the original maker. So this art form, we see um, traces of it all over um, Korea and Japan, especially. So if you go to like different museums, um, you know, we were just at British Museum and the Metropolitan Museum and also National Gallery in Korea. And if you go to this Korean section where um, Korean art is known for its um, pottery, and so you, you look at these potteries and almost all of them are actually broken. There are certain chips, certain fractures, uh, certain cracks, and you will see um, actually all of them being having been mended with gold. So they're all kintsuki'd, but there's no mention of kintsuki in the description of each vessel. And I like to um, imagine that the reason, I mean, we'll never know exactly why, but I think the reason is knowing um, the, the Korean culture a little bit, uh, being um, uh, raised in that Korean culture, is that um, mending something broken is so embedded in Korean culture that in the Eastern culture, we don't easily throw things away. So mending it with something precious and keeping it for generations, it's such a part of the culture of Korean um, history and art. And I believe that um, that um, kintsuki technique was was um, was really given to Japanese uh, because of the lacquer tradition uh, and lacquer um, art in Korea is was so developed. It's probably the highest. Uh, globally and historically. And the lacquer um, uh, art uh, was really the beginning of the kintsuki art. And then um, in Japan, because of tea tradition was um, so developed in Japan, when a precious tea ware uh, breaks, uh, the tea masters will hold onto these pieces and mend them so that this bowl, the tea bowl uh, or teacup that was uh, used to serve really high officials, therefore has a really deep meaning and, and, and value to it, can um, uh, be reused. So it can be went mended with kintsuki. And um, from then on, I think, you know, these days, kintsuki has become quite popular. I've seen it um, in Hollywood 
in music, you know, albums and labels, and has become, I think, more well known these days. And Academy Kintsuki has um, has a vision of really delivering this message of um, restoration and hope and new creation. Um, and it's not about just learning the craft of it, but truly the meaning behind it and being able to see the fractures of this world in your life and having the hope of co-creation and new creation. I love the profound theological significance there that, well, even just the beautiful image that what you were saying that this vessel, it carries meaning and it's worth preserving. Um, it's worth mending. Uh, it's, it's not something that you want to just say like, oh, this crack, it's too far gone. Let's just toss it. And there's just profound theological significance to that. I think, especially of Christ's promise, not that I will make all new things, but I will make all things new. Um, and, and to me, Kintsugi is just a beautiful, like living image of, of that promise that we like then live into, Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've, I've been using this Kintsuki message with um, everything that, that I do, actually, all these companies that I run. And but especially for Embers International, where we go into the most broken places of the world and we um, we serve the survivors and and also existing current victims of trafficking. So we have a children's center that we built in the heart of a red light district in India. And we serve not only the women, but also their children who are born into brothels, into the most broken places. And they still, some of them still live there. And so when we look at that kind of fracture in their lives, what does it mean to mend it, to create something new um, out of that? And so if we can go back to the image of this um, vessel that has been mended with the Kintsugi um, art form, you know, we look at it and we, we look at the the cracks and and the fissures and they are filled with lacquer and gold, right? So you see that um, beautiful um, uh, uh, river of gold on this vessel. So this vessel was mended by itself, right? This vessel didn't have the lacquer and gold. There is this Kintsuki lacquer master who looked at this vessel and find, find, um, find it to be worthy of, of mending and mends it with such care, right? Because the fractures can be sharp. It might be dangerous. Uh, it might look so ugly. You have to look at these fractures and, and imagine that it can become something more beautiful. And then you have to put this very precious gold and lacquer into it. And the entire process of not only applying, but waiting for the lacquer to dry, it takes patience. And then you put this gold that is so valuable. And a lot of times this gold is a lot more valuable than, valuable than the, the value of the, the vessel itself. But you apply it because you see something worthy about these fractures that you want it to be mended and created into something new. So now looking at the, the victims of injustice whose life has been so fractured, I really believe that we, the community around, the people who are called to seek justice and love mercy and create beauty in these darkest places, 
we are to become that lacquer and gold. We need to pour ourselves into their lives that we fill those fissures and cracks so that this community, these lives, these individuals can become that new creation, right? And then that co-creation is done with God, the original maker of this world and of the people that we serve. And we have been invited into this co-creation with God to mend this world together. And that message is so embodied in Kintsuki um, that I get really excited about um, just talking about it, talking to you guys about it. Oh, and it's such a treat for us to hear you just paint a picture of that vision of, of beauty as justice. And hey, Jane, I'm also a lawyer. And so I'm really interested to understand from you um, more about how this informs your legal practice. And you've, you've described beautifully, it's um, really moving to hear you describe that, that vision of co-creation with victims of injustice. But more generally in your legal practice, I mean, the legal profession doesn't have the best rap um, for pursuing the common good or even pursuing the interests of, of the vulnerable. Um, I've looked up your website and you have these, these values um, that, that, that translate into your legal practice. Could you unpack for us how this, how this um, the concept of kintsugi translates day-to-day -day as a lawyer um, when you're dealing with difficult clients, when you're, you know, as a litigator, gee, you're, you're having to navigate strategy and, and being a bit more cutthroat, but how do, you, how, does that, how do you weave that into your everyday practice? Oh, I love that question. And I wish we had like three-day retreat on this. <laughs> I, I love lawyers and I love the fact that we can wrestle with these questions. Um, and, um, you know, I, when I um, decided to become a lawyer, I really had a vision to um, be an advocate more than anything. And I think we, um, a lot of us have mentors in our lives and they are so important and God bless them. Uh, but mentors are the ones I think who um, share their wisdom with us and guide us through um, giving us guidelines. Um, but I think advocates are a little bit different than mentors. Advocates are the ones who actually put themselves into your shoe and be your defender, your protector, your voice. And so for lawyers, you know, we have many different um, names, um, especially in, in America, lawyers are called um, uh, as a, a advisor, counselor, um, an attorney, uh, but my favorite title is actually an advocate. So advocates are, um, are not needed when there's everything is okay. Right, like we don't, we don't need an advocate. We're strong. We are. We have. We're provided for. But advocates are needed because there is a some someone who needs someone to come in and then be their voice. So in a legal practice, um, you know, I was before I started my own law firm ten years ago. Um, I've been practicing for about eighteen years now. I was in a um, um, a different law firm, a litigation law firm in New York City, and. Um, I was able to see a lot of brokenness, not only in our clients' um, matters, but also how legal practice uh, is, is run. And um, 
And in a place where we are to be a voice for the voiceless, and whether that is, you know, public interest law or even business law, or what kind of, it doesn't matter what kind of law you practice, there is a, you are in a situation to be an advocate for your clients. But if you, the, the environment that you're in, the industry itself where you're in is so broken that lawyers are not cared for. And we ourselves are the ones who are in a way kind of um, oppressed in a very different ways, but feeling like we are not um, heard. It's also really a hard place for us to become an advocate. So I saw um, legal practice being um, in a way very fractured. And I wanted to create a place where lawyers uh, feel cared for and feel cultivated. Um, and they can just confidently say that I, I love going to work. You know, a lot of lawyers love their work, but they don't like going to work, right? Because the workplaces can be not the healthiest. So how can I, as an entrepreneur and, um, and a leader who has given the authority to steward, how can I create an, a space where lawyers actually love their work? So I thought about these um, eight core values that is on our website, Shimen Associates, and started to look at um, the legal practice and then law firm culture and where are the broken places, fractured areas, and what kind of gold and lacquer can I pour into that? So, um, but when we do that, I think it naturally um, requires certain level of, um, you know, what we will just easily call sacrifice. Um, and of course, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, sacrifice because I was given that kind of resources and authority to store. Therefore, I'm sharing that. But it takes, I think, a little bit of um, upside down world uh, countercultural um, decisions uh, to come to a place where for example, I'm going to share the profit of the company with everyone in the company, including my assistant. You don't have to be a partner or owner of the company to share in that. Because when I say our work is a teamwork, that without you assisting me, without you uh, doing your part, we can really serve our client the best way that we want. But we have been so successful um, therefore, we have these kind of profits as a result, and that was a teamwork. And if I call that a teamwork, then I am going to put that into practice and and actually have you share in that result as well. So um, I think just being able to understand where the fractures are and um, having that kind of courage and willingness to pour what is given to you as a golden lacquer into that. I think that leads to mending and co-creating a workspace that is um, more loving and caring and cultivating. Um, yeah, so, you know, when I started my law firm, I mean, it's, you know, still very small law firm, so it's very, in a way, manageable, but, um, you know, I I had the privilege of um, um, serving, you know, more than like 500 litigation cases and, um, you know, producing a great result, um, serving hundreds of companies to um, start or, you know, advance, you know, towards next steps. Um, and all of that, I think, 
um, really took the uh, my team to understand that we're coming in as an advocate and we have been advocated for by our leader. And uh, therefore, I can do my job in a way that um, is really designed. Oh, I think that that's so spectacular to hear that vision for the legal profession, hey, Jin. I think that in in the um, the practice that I work in, um, I used to be a banking lawyer, and uh, I, I similarly share that I have a real heart for for a lot of um, a lot of lawyers. Um, I think that there's this kind of combination of deeply deeply insecure and over competitive. Those two kind of those two kind of qualities um, intermingling and it so it presents in this aggressive um, off-putting manner but behind that is this is this um you know soft um you know soft person just wanting to know am I am I enough um, and so that kind of environment that you've created sounds like a, a spectacular place to work um, and I just I I was struck as you're talking how this stuff just isn't semantics you know, it's not just like repackaging, reframing. It actually does transform the way that you do your work. Even so that I've, I've moved from banking law and I work in not-for-profit law. And the practice that I work in has a real emphasis on service of the sector. And it's interesting how that has refa- reframed so much of the way I think about work. Um, and it's because it's not about me. It's not about making a name for myself. It's about how can I leverage the things that God has given me to see and meet those fractures and those needs that you encounter in your practice. So I just thank you so much for that work that you're doing. That's it's amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I just really find it um, a privilege to do what I do. And um, and I think, you know, I, I don't know about UK, but um, in the law schools that I'm aware um we are really not taught what it means to be a lawyer and what it means to um, like seek justice. Like what does even justice mean, right? Because a lot of times, you know, you and I can talk about justice. You and I can talk about beauty. We and I can even talk about, you know, co-creation, you know, that we were talking about through Kintsuki. But we, we will realize that we are not seeing things eye to eye. And although you are saying things um, that sounds right. And I am saying things about justice that sounds right, but we are not coming into place of understanding. And a lot of times I think because we have, we come from a very different assumptions, right? So, you know, you can talk about justice, but your idea of justice may look very different from my idea of justice. And same thing with beauty. And it's not about defining it, but understanding where you're coming from, what your assumptions are, therefore we can come to a place of understanding. So for um, the work of justice, what law is, what righteousness is, which is all about just within our legal practice, whether you practice you know, banking law, nonprofit business or otherwise. Um, so I had to look at um, what God uh, means by justice. And justice and righteousness are um, coupled a lot of times in the Bible. So God will call himself as I'm a God of justice and righteousness. I love justice and righteousness. Let justice and righteousness roll down like river. And so, uh, but what does that even mean? So I um, look up the, like the root word of righteousness and justice. And um, one is mishpah and the other one is a sedekah. 
and mishpah is a restorative justice of uh, of um, uh, righting the wrong, right, and then caring for the victim. But tzedakah, also coupled with mishpah, means a life that is in flourishing and harmonious relationship with everybody. So if the if that's God's idea of justice and righteousness, everyone being in the harmonious and flourishing relationship. Lawyers have a huge role to play because, you know, we have, let's say, business relationships coming together, um, even to enter into this new relationship. When we come in, um, a lot of times what happens in a kind of um, 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 negotiation table that each party will want to take more from the other, right? Like, what can you do for me? Right. And so that we can get into this relationship. Um, but what if we can think about in a different way where what can I do for you so that we can have this harmonious, righteous, and just relationship that can lead to a flourishing long-term relationship with you because your flourishing actually translates into my flourishing. And you are not doing that because you want to get something out of the other person, but you're actually looking after the other party and the other party looking after your interest. And I call that beautiful contract. And it's, you know, it may sound very ideal, but I believe that's what God really intended us to be in. And of course, the world is so broken. So you know, I think we we have a huge role to play in terms of um, educating our clients. And, and of course, honestly, I haven't had that fully beautiful contract that I, I always dreamed of yet. But it's, um, you know, one term at a time, you know, one contract term at a time, one issue at a time where we can um, come together and then see the world where your flourishing leads to our flourishing. And, um, and I don't, you know, I think there's a, a big gap that we can fill um, in all kinds of relation, legal relationships, um, because at the end, business, family, government, citizen, all of them are in a relationship where we are there for each other. There are rights and obligations and boundaries, and all of that can come together, not as a transactional relationship but abundant relationship mm. and I think I'm, I'm struck as you're, you're speaking about that how about that idea of beautiful contract how even in, in a recent negotiation that I was a part of um, where the where the all the parties had like were coming from very different cultures organizational cultures and we were at a bit of an impasse um, in that um, it was scrapping over interests basically the, the, the turning, the inflection point was when someone asked, basically invited the other parties in to consider, this is what you want, this is what we want, what's a way, through, what's a way forward from here? And that shifted the whole tenor of the conversation towards one of collaboration or, or co-creation, let's, let's call it, um, and inviting people into, you know, away from self-interest and into that kind of partnership. It is possible. It's hard, but it. it goes against the grain, but it is possible. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struck also um, in my first week of law school, I'm actually Australian, um, hey Jin, um, also common law system, but in my first week of law school, um, one of the High Court justices of the Australian High Court 
um, Justice Michael Kirby, who was a bit of more of an activist judge. Um, he was presenting to us our cohort, and I remember asking him a question basically about, you know, justice because I was a bleeding heart at the time. And he said basically that the law isn't about justice. It's about fidelity to the letter of the law. And that's why it's about getting the settings right in terms of the framework. And I think that there's something about that recognition that the law doesn't inherently serve justice, but if we labour with it as a tool, as an instrument, um, there are different settings that we can create, we can kind of bake into it um, that can serve the interests of more people um, that, than not. Um, I was wondering also um, in terms of the way that you think about, you know, that, that, that justice isn't just a conceptual vacuum that we need to kind of populate it with, with things. How has like the work of people like um, Martha Nussbaum, who talks about the capabilities approach about how the, um, that what flourishing looks like um, it needs to be tailored to the different communities that we're in. How does justice look different in New York City compared to, you know, the slums of India? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, so I um, had an opportunity to talk about um, beauty and justice, how um, beauty and justice are really the two sides of one coin. The reason why, um, ultimately, the reason why I seek justice is because um, it's not for the sake of justice, but it's actually for the sake of beauty. Because justice is required because injustice happen to the creation, right? Whether it's to a person, the image bearer of God, or the creation that has been created by the Almighty has been violated and exploited in a certain way, that injustice happen. So when we seek justice, um, for me personally, at least, is the, my ultimate goal is the restoration of beauty. And um, Marco and I uh, get to talk about that together. Um, and you know, I've in my whole life as a as a lawyer, I've been talking about that. You know, um, beauty as a restore justice. And then Marco has been talking about uh, a beauty that uh, can be created in the most broken places. So when we met, I mean, it was so natural for us to talk about that together. And in this one event, we talked about this beauty and justice um, idea very briefly. And there happens to be um, an, a Japanese ambassador to the UN um, um, with us. It was a, an event in New York City. And then he came up to us afterwards and he said, no, your your talk on beauty and justice was was really compelling to me. It was really moving. And he said, I travel the world and I've seen justice being cruel and not beautiful. And I want to see justice being beautiful. So again, I think the idea of justice can be can look so different, right? In different cultures and different people. And in terms of the, um, you know, justice in New York City, as opposed to in India, you know, the kind of people that we serve, um, our teams serve, um, are, are very different people. The people in New York City, um, and I do have also um, organizations and groups that serve the poor in New York City, um, but the poor in New York City also have a very different kind of situation than the poor in India. 
And the people who are victims of violence in India is also a little bit different situation in New York City. But I think ultimately, um, the kind of justice that is required for both communities um, is, I think, at the end, the restoration of beauty. And the kind of abuse or oppression and exploitation and violence that we see in New York City um, are, I mean, there's so many, um, you know, every day we hear it um, about, hear about it. And there is a certain new brokenness in the law enforcement part of it in all countries and different levels. And the kind of uh, brokenness that we see, the kind of fracture that we see in New York City, um, it may be a very different level as a kind of third world, uh, first world country, as opposed to where we are in the red lights and then slums of India. And um, in a way, the kind of um, embedded generational oppression that the people that we serve in India have suffered from um, is so socially embedded. But at the same time, the injustice that we see in New York City is also very socially embedded. It just is applied differently into different culture. So um, I think ultimately, you know, when we have this restore justice, um, in whether it's in New York or in India, I think we'll be able to see the kind of um, seraka that we talked about, the harmonious and flourishing relationship with all the relationship and sectors that exist in these um, different communities. Well, and what it seems like to me as I'm hearing you share this is exactly what you explained before, how the Kintsugi master looks at the individual bowl that has its own unique fractures and no two are, vessels are alike in their, in their areas of brokenness. And, um, and so these different contexts and these different cultures, it takes that kind of patient attention. What am I dealing with here? This is not necessarily, I can't presume this is the same. And how can I pour gold and lacquer into these particular cracks? Um, which is amazing. I, I also love how you're talking about the, the comment about how I've seen justice be cruel before. And, um, I had, um, a friend of mine has says this frequently, um, he says, justice is not just about making something right. It's about making something whole. And, and that's the kind of what you're describing here is this holistic flourishing that I think when we think about justice is just kind of this vengeful tit for tat, you know, you took, now I take. <laughs> um, that's not beautiful. That's not actually generative or making something whole. And so I, I think you're illustrating beautifully, a, a profoundly beautiful concept of justice. Oh, thank you so much. And 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 yet you're absolutely right. This embodiment of this idea uh, in Kintsugi Bowl has been really, really helpful and effective. So, um, and I think um, Kintsugi has the power to have a common language for the most vulnerable to the most powerful, because we all understand that kind of fracture, whether it's on an individual level or a global level or national level. So we, um, Mako and I, and through Academy Kintsuki, uh, had the opportunities to bring uh, what, what I call Kintsuki peacemaking. So it's a Kintsuki dash peacemaking. Um, so the emphasis is not about um, peace alone, but it's about making. So it's a making work, but what are we making? We're making Kintsuki peace. And Kintsuki peace is not just 
um, getting rid of violence, right? Getting rid of injustice, but it's actually creating something new out of that fracture and that time. So Kintsuki peacemaking um, work has been um, just, it's just been our kind of ministry to this world where we brought it to India, we brought it to Dominican Republic, and uh, we uh, were able to present Kintsuki and actually do the Kintsuki because Kintsuki is not about an idea. It's about somatic knowledge that you actually have to experience it. So at Academy Kintsuki, we don't call uh, these kind of um, you know, sessions workshop. We actually call it Kintsuki experience. So we were able to bring that to uh, trauma-informed counselors and teachers and NGO uh, teams um, in the slums in the red light in India. We were able to bring it to Dominican Republic and uh, we were able to do Kintsuki um, peacemaking work with the survivors of trafficking. And um, now in about a week, uh, we're actually going to London uh, to present Kintsuki to the members of UK parliament. So these are the kind of opportunities to talk about this beautiful idea, this beautiful concept um, to the powerful, to the most powerful decision makers. And I'm really hopeful that um, this can lead to the kind of mishpa that um, I was called to, I set out to do as a lawyer. Speaking of London, I was just there a few weeks ago and I was at a cocktail bar. And when I looked at the menu, there was a drink called Kintsugi. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get it. And the, the drink came out. It's one of those uh, cocktail bars where every drink has its own specialized glass. And, and this, this glass, you know, was clearly had the Kintsugi method as part of it, but it was, it was like six different rocks glasses that had been uh, put together. And I was thinking about that, especially when I noticed that every single glass was exactly the same, considering that Kintsugi is this kind of unrepeatable, you know, sort of art form. It started to make me wonder about the commodification of it, but also the idea of mixing pieces. I was wondering, in your opinion, is this kind of um, not least the commodification uh, side of it, but but specifically the idea of merging different types of vessels all together? Does that run uh, counter to the spirit of Kintsugi? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there is actually a related uh, art form called Yubitsuki. Yubitsuki is when, um, you know, you have a, a fractured piece from, let's say, a plate, and there's a, it's, it's, the other part is completely missing, and it's a large chunk. And so, but you hold on to it because this is precious to you. And you have another piece uh, that is, you know, also fractured from another plate. If you can put them together, and they're not going to fit perfectly, of course. So you will have to use, of course, the lacquer and uh, bond, bind them together, um, and then so create you can create something new out of it. But there is this art form where two different vessels, missing pieces or fractured pieces, come together, and then create something new out of it, and honoring both uh, original vessels, but creating something new out of those two vessels or three vessels or six vessels in this case. And of course, you not you don't do it because uh, you want to throw away the rest of the piece. I mean, that's not the purpose of it. But when you have a um, a broken piece, broken vessel, and there's like a missing piece, then you look for that um, kind of a, a, a adoption piece, right, from another vessel, and then you put it together. And this has been also very powerful message to, um, especially, 
um, areas of the world that are in conflict. So we have Yobizuki uh, pieces where we take a piece from India and piece from Pakistan, and we put them together. And we have a piece from Japan and Korea, and we put them together. And you can think of many other places where there is this kind of historical conflict, but we demonstrate with this beauty that we can come together. So Mako and I, um, we actually, our marriage actually represents Kintsuki and in particular Yubitsuki because he is um, a Japanese um, descent and you know, he was born in America, but he has this very strong heritage as a Japanese and Japanese American. And I'm Korean American myself. And um, of course, you know, as many of you know, there is a, there's a long history of um, conflict between these two countries. And, and um, we feel very privileged to be able to talk about Kintsuki message when we come together as a married couple and representing, you know, what love and forgiveness can do um, even when there's a history conflict. So yeah, so what you saw is probably a, a variation of that. And what is so beautiful about that image too is it's not like it's expected to fit perfectly. Probably the edges don't exactly align and the piece doesn't lose its distinctiveness. You can tell this is a piece from Japan. This is a piece from Korea. It doesn't kind of all melt into one thing, um, but it maintains its singularity and distinctiveness, but, but it's bonded together. I love, I love that image. It's so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And then what binds them together is this precious gold, right? There is a, a sacrifice um, and um, kind of pouring, outpouring of the resources into it. Um, and that's what it takes a lot of times, but it's all worth it at the end of the day. Speaking of that gold that binds these pieces together with when we're talking about like, you know, countries that are at odds or just division in general, which of course we see a lot, even in this country, you know, with the midterms and all kinds of political division and et cetera, what is the gold that is needed, right. To bind us together. You know, is it, is it a restored sense of art as we've kind of been talking about, what do you see as being that gold that is needed to, to bring these broken pieces of our division and divisiveness together? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I, um, it, it will be a very personal answer and there's, I don't think the one ingredient, right. Uh, that is, um, magic, you know, uh, answer to that. But I do believe that um, it's love. It's love and love that um, in the true sense of love, that kind of uh, love that involves forgiveness, self-giving, sacrifice, generous, and the kind of love that um, can move people into um, a place of, of hope and hope for the future. Um, and thinking of the really, um, not only um, loving our, um, our community ourselves, but uh, loving forward to the next generation. So um, in Kintsugi uh, is, a, is a combination of two words, kin and tsugi. Uh, kin in Japanese means gold. And tsugi means to connect or to mend. 
So, um, so Kintsuki is it's just the embodiment of that that name. But Tsuki in Japanese also means to pass down to the next generation. So when we think about Kintsuki, what are we passing down to the next generation? Can we come together and think about the kind of restoration, the kind of hope and beauty that we are willing to hand down to the next generation because we have so much love to hand down to? Or is it the divisiveness and polarization and hatred that, that we are so willing to hand down to the next generation? So if we can stop and pause and think about that, and that's another message of Kintsuki because when um, precious tables break, the tea masters often will hold on to those fractures for a very long time until they feel like they're ready to mend it, the pieces are ready to be mended. And sometimes uh, it takes generations actually. So they will pass down the fractured pieces to the next generation. And we call that process, that time, beholding. And when we behold the fractures and being able to, and take that time to imagine the beauty that can come out of this fracture and pour out the love and, 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 and sacrifice and forgiveness that is the gold and lacquer into our, our generation, then we can certainly bring down that generational love to the next and next and the next to come. And I think one of the things that um, makes love the gold of Kintsuki for me is because love is one of those things that is so abundant. And you know, if you think about it, the more you love, the more love you have, right? And love is never transactional in the truest form. So the more you love, the more, the better you love, right? The, the deeper you love. It's kind of like you practice violin, the more you practice and the more, but it's not just practicing. When you begin to teach violin to someone else, you actually be, become a better violinist when you share that knowledge, right? So I think love is like that. The more we love, the more love we have. So to me, that's the key. And, um, you know, how do we start that and how do we spark that? I think it's, it's all on us. It's on you. It's, you know, hopefully this podcast can spark something like that too. Um, just, you know, beyond this, this one community, small community, right? We have in the, in the screen, but onto the next generation. Oh, well, hey, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a lovely conversation, just so rich. And Jenna, we're so grateful for your time and for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I, I you know, Marco spoke so highly of, of you guys. And this was really one of the best podcast interviews that he had. You know, he really like thought was so well done. And he loved the conversation and love, I think, especially having these like, you know, multiple conversation partners is, is, is amazing. It's a brilliant way to do it. So thank you. I really enjoyed it too. And I wish we had more time, but maybe another time. Maybe another time indeed. And wow. Thanks so much for sharing that. That, that was wonderful to hear. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And blessings to you guys. <laughs>